Hello again, my name is Shannon. I'm a sinner. Take no pride in that fact, but take great comfort in the reality that God sent his one and only son into the world to save sinners like me and probably you, and that through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, I might have a new kind of life and eternal life now and later, that I might be invited into, by God's grace, the privilege of following Jesus and seeing, hopefully through that, and with God's help, God's kingdom come and God's love cover the earth. Thanks be to God. Again, I want to welcome those of you who are uh, guests with us this morning. We're glad you're here for this thing that we do. We're glad you're online with us. We hope that you're encouraged uh, by our time together this morning. It's something that we do every Sunday and really get great encouragement and joy out of it, and we're just glad that you're here with us. This morning, we're finishing up a year-long journey through the Gospel of Mark, and some of you can't believe that we're finally... Uh, after more than a year, finishing up the Gospel of Mark. And this is it. There are no more extra left out bonus uh, passages. We're done in just a few minutes. Uh, Before we get into that passage of Scripture, let me pray just for our time in the Word. God, as we uh, look and listen uh, and hope, hopefully learn, we ask that you would help us that through your spirit, uh, you would enable us to see and hear and learn and become and grow in ways that bring us joy and that bring you great glory. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. In the name of Christ the Lord, amen. So chapter 15 in Mark's gospel, which we talked about on Friday, covers the crucifixion of Jesus and everything that happened on that day, on Friday. Uh, the Friday was what was called preparation day for the Jewish people. So Saturday, actually Friday sundown through Saturday sundown, was their Sabbath, which means rest. And so they didn't do any work on Saturday or the Sabbath which meant that they spent a lot of time doing kind of extra work on Friday or the preparation day so that they could rest on the Sabbath. That's kind of the context of where we are as we pick up in chapter 16 now, the last chapter in Mark's gospel. Uh, Listen closely, this is God's word. Now when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that, that might, so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body, which is pretty typical then. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away, and as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. I don't know why the right, not the left, but... And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. Jesus is going ahead of you. There you will see Jesus just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, The women went out and fled from the tomb, which is probably what most of us would do. They said nothing to anyone, at least at that time, Mark records, because they were afraid. Now, I've probably been to more burial sites 
than most people my age. Been to more cemeteries and spent more time in cemeteries around and among graves in graveyards than most people my age. And I have never once encountered a gravesite that was supposed to be sealed, in other words, with dirt or a slab of concrete or some other way of sealing that, that wasn't, but rather that was mysteriously opened in some way. That has never happened in my experience, nor have I ever known anyone who has had that experience or seen or witnessed or heard of such a thing. It just doesn't happen. I've never been to or led a funeral at a funeral home where, in contrast to how we do things here in the sanctuary, people often have caskets and often open caskets. I have never been to a funeral or led a funeral in which the person in the casket all of a sudden gets up or rises. That doesn't happen. If it did, it would change my life, as it probably would yours. But if something like this ever did happen, I too would probably be at least somewhat, as Mark said, afraid. Bewildered, confused, nervous, anxious, even scared. Yeah, all of those things, things like that simply don't happen. And if anyone was to tell me that something like that happened, I would seriously question either their intelligence or their integrity or their gullibility or their source or multiple of the above. And yet here we have the climactic event, the last event in Mark's gospel, and his final word is afraid, afraid. And yet the nature and magnitude of what had just happened merits such a response. Empty tune, young man dressed in white, mysterious dude who says Jesus has risen, as if he had just been taking this sort of three-day nap. But this, my friends, as unusual and wild and crazy and outlandish and unprecedented, seemingly contrary to nature and science, seemingly unbelievable as this may be, was and remains the defining event and linchpin of what we know as Christianity and, of course, what Easter is all about. Now, we've added to Easter or we've enhanced Easter, or we've embellished the whole Easter enterprise in a variety of ways. We have domesticated Easter, if you will, and made it more child-friendly in a variety of ways and more palatable socially and culturally in a variety of ways, the chief of which may be our good friend, Mr. Easter Bunny. And hunting for those eggs, which... Could not have come from a bunny, by the way, of course, because bunnies are mammals and mammals don't lay eggs. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Why is the Easter bunny a bunny rather than a chicken or a duck? Nobody really knows. Regardless, I loved hunting Easter eggs that may or may not have come from a bunny when I was a kid, loved that and sort of got uh, almost sort of hardcore competitive about that as a kid. Now I love hiding Easter eggs and it's almost as fun, but not quite as much fun. And so sometimes I still hide them and then hunt them <laughs> and conquer my kids. <laughs> Bunnies are so cute. I know one of my little kids, is, my littlest kid is thinking right now, are you not? Bunnies are so cute. 
I hate to break it to you, friends, the Easter Bunny did not rise from the dead. The Easter Bunny did not, was not raised from the grave. The Easter Bunny is not, was not, has never been resurrected. Nor, was, nor has a chicken been, nor has a duck. Nor was the groundhog, Punxsutawney Phil. He was not raised from the tomb, as some people think, as a rite of spring. There's a resur- No, it's not a resurrection. That's something else. Rather, it was Jesus who had been killed, who, yes, had been killed, executed, crucified, dead, and buried, as we say. He was dead. Rigor mortis had set in. Body had begun to decay. Decay was happening. And we read very explicitly at the end of chapter 15 in Mark's gospel, these words, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Summoning a centurion, Pilate asked if Jesus had already died. When Pilate learned from the centurion that it was so, Pilate gave the body to Joseph. But only after checking and rechecking and checking again to make sure that Jesus' body was dead. He gives it to Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Jewish ruling council, a pretty reputable dude someone who had a lot of integrity as the story goes. Over in John's gospel, we read, now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want bodies left on the cross during their Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Breaking legs was a way to expedite the dying process for someone who was hung on a cross, which as you know, was a pretty typical way that the Romans executed, killed, punished people in a very public fashion. Let's break their legs so they can't hold themselves up at all and continue to breathe. Snap those legs. They'll collapse and they'll suffocate more quickly. Verse 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus sighed with a spear, bringing a flow of blood and water. Again, this is not part of our domesticated Easter. But the soldier pierces Jesus' side. Blood and water flow down Golgotha. There's no doubt that Jesus was as dead as a person can be as dead as a person can be, no doubt. They made sure. And that Jesus was dead matters because, because if Jesus was dead and then somehow alive again two days later on the third day, then that means that What Jesus said about himself dying and rising again, which he said well before he even shows up in Jerusalem, was accurate and reliable and trustworthy and true. And so, all of a sudden, everything that Jesus said was more reliably authoritative than it ever had been before. And therefore, the things that Jesus said about life and about reality and about God and about goodness and what is true and right and good all of a sudden now have even more credibility. And the things that Jesus said and sometimes implied about himself 
about himself now have to be taken more seriously than ever before. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, because he was dead and then somehow alive again, means that a person has new reason to believe that what Jesus said about his death, what he said about his death on a cross, and specifically his atoning death, in Mark's words, his being a ransom for many, all of a sudden the veracity of that and those statements increases, skyrockets, and has to be taken seriously. Conversely, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Useless. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, it's all a sham, it's all a house of cards, it's all empty religion. Yes, Jesus was this amazing teacher and cultural critic and revolutionary and ethicist and sage. He was a good, kind soul who looked out for the weak and the marginalized and the outsiders and the oppressed and the little people, widows, children, pariah, foreigners. And somehow he healed people. Somehow he, yeah, walked on water. Maybe it was a trick. But he had seemed to have power over nature. He pushed back people in authority who abused that authority. He spoke truth to power. He redefined greatness. For millennia to come with a towel, he redefined greatness. He lived boldly. He lived convic with conviction. He refused to back down or bend or waver. But Paul wrote, even taking all of that into account, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, our preaching is useless and so our faith and so is your faith because everything rides on the resurrection of Jesus. Everything rides on the resurrection of Jesus. But if in fact Jesus was raised from the dead and a logical case can be made for such, a reasonable person can believe such and maybe a reasonable person has to believe such. Everything is different. It's a game changer, this resurrection thing. It's not just the end of the story. It's a game changer. And I say logical and reasonable because other than Jesus being raised bodily from death, there is no logical and reasonable explanation for the existence of of the church, for Jesus' disciples for behavior, for the survival of this Jesus movement, this following Jesus movement, for the continuation and growth of the first and early church or Christian community, because after Jesus' crucifixion and even before that, when he was arrested, put on trial, everyone disappeared. Everyone disappeared. His best friends betrayed him and denied him faded into the woodwork, faded into the shadows. The only people who remained were Jesus' mommy and a few women disciples who dared kind of hang around the edges. After Jesus' crucifixion, everything changes. When it became clear that Jesus wasn't committed to ousting the occupying Roman government before his death, that he wasn't even gonna try, some of his disciples began to turn on him, others retreated. They went into hiding, their dreams were dashed, their hopes were sunk, their expectations obliterated, disappointment and disbelief permeated their souls as they watched Jesus carried away by the authorities as right before their public, right before that public opinion on Jesus craters, the crowds do a 180 on him. They mocked Jesus, stripped him, beat him, and then nailed him to a cross the only outcome of which was an excruciating death. 
again. We've domesticated Jesus, crucifixion, and Easter. That weekend was a mess. That weekend was an absolute mess. And then Jesus is dead. And the dude that they looked up to, they're now looking up to as a corpse. It was over. They'd had a good run with Jesus. He'd lifted some of them out of their dead-end situations. Many of their lives had been transformed. They'd seen things they couldn't explain, they didn't know how to explain. They'd been drawn into the orbit and enamored by the words and the way of, of this gentle yet powerful carpenter from Nazareth. It had been a great run, and for some of their lives, their lives would ever forever be different. But now it was over. The king, the one they had hoped and assumed would eventually rise to his throne, instead has a crown of thorns put on his head and more blood. He's dead. It's over. And after a time of grieving, some began to head home. Some began to return to their where they came from, their jobs, their rituals, their former lives. And nothing could change this. Nothing could change their new reality. Nothing would change it except, except the appearance of Jesus. Once again, somehow, despite the nails, despite the spear, despite the beatings, despite the scourges, despite all that, Jesus is again alive, walking, talking, eating, laughing, loving, living, somehow. But was this a trick, an illusion, a hoax? People don't rise from the dead, especially people who have first been beaten to a pulp for hours, nailed to a cross for six more hours, and then speared. Was this a hoax, a fraud, or a deception? Inquiring minds today, 2,000 years later, still want to know. We're surrounded by hoaxes literally yesterday. Someone sends a message to First Prez through our online portal seeking money and, and to coerce us so that we might give them Bitcoin, lying, creating scenarios that aren't true, saying things that aren't true, trying to scam us. Over the last couple of months, a number of times, people have created fake email addresses, impersonating me, trying to convince good-hearted people in the congregation to send them gift cards. We are surrounded by scams and hoaxes and lies and deception. Still today, ever since Jacob and Esau, and probably much further back than that, and so could the supposed resurrection of Jesus have been a ploy, a ruse, a scheme, a deception on the part of Jesus' disciples to resurrect their movement, to bring back the good times so that they could stay in positions of power, or prestige, or privilege, of wealth? But there was actually none of that waiting for them. And so it doesn't make sense. Following Jesus and claiming that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that Jesus had conquered death offered none of those things, but instead offered to them certain danger, alienation, sacrifice, hardship, poverty, and a significant degree of uncertainty in their lives. And yet, because they were so convinced that now Jesus is alive again, 
And thus all that Jesus said was true and truer than it had ever been and truth could be known. They reversed course again, devoted themselves and their lives again to Jesus and the proclamation of his gospel and the coming of his kingdom and to loving people in Jesus' name and with his power. And there's no other logical, reasonable explanation for how this other new second 180 happens other than that Jesus crucified is now alive. If Jesus' resurrection had been a scheme or a deception, certainly that would have become known quickly. There would have been cracks in the story, leaks from the ship, conspirers, in other words, disciples, bailing out, jumping ships, spilling the beans. Chuck Colson, who was an attorney and a political advisor, who back in 1969-70 was special counsel to President Richard Nixon and who gained notoriety at the height of the Watergate scandal, eventually pled guilty in 1974, served time in prison for obstruction of justice, and was the first member of the Nixon administration to be incarcerated for his role in that terrible scandal. This Chuck Colson, who later comes to, comes to faith in Christ and whose life is literally transformed, or as he names his autobiography, born again, wrote, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if Jesus' resurrection was not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And so where does that leave a person? Where does that leave us? Having to make some really curious, interesting, and maybe hard decisions now. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then there's no reason to believe there's anything or anyone beyond this life and these bodies. This is it. Eat, drink, and party for tomorrow we die. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then the scriptures are not trustworthy and we're on our own with regard to any faith. What may or may not be true is up to each one of us individually. And look at the person next to you. Do you trust them to make eternal decisions on their own behalf, much less yours? If Jesus was not raised from the dead, a person can go on however he or she likes, practicing a mundane and powerless Christianity, as many Christians do or any faith the way they want. It doesn't really matter a whole lot. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then maybe there's no power beyond the power that we have as human beings that we can see, touch, and wield ourselves. Maybe not. But if Jesus is raised from the dead, but if Jesus really is raised from the dead, it's a game changer for every one of us because the power has been not only exerted, but unleashed and made available to us by God's grace to live differently, what the scriptures call eternally, now and in this life and in the life to come. That power that raised Jesus from the dead, Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus, is available to anyone who would like it, who calls on the name of the Lord. And that power has the ability and the authority to transform our lowly lives into something of greater joy and significance. 
think back to the Vladimir Putin of the first century. His name was Saul. He was from a place called Tarsus. He almost seemed to find delight in killing people, and especially killing people who were different than he was. And then unexpected, unplanned, by no choice of his own, he has this encounter on a road to Damascus in which he runs into not an illusion, not an idea, not something that someone created, not a hoax, not a deception, but a person who spoke audibly to him and caused him to not be able to see for a few days and said, why are you persecuting me? Why? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Jesus who lives, who was alive, and who continues to live. And through that, a really mean, angry, ruthless, killing person, Saul, became the Apostle Paul and probably the second most important person in human history. After Jesus, having written most of the New Testament, or more than anyone else. A complete 180 in transformation because he had encountered not a dead religion, not rules, but a living Savior and a resurrected King. And so now we're faced with a choice. We are continually faced with that choice of what we're going to do with Jesus' words, what we're going to do with what he said, what we're going to do with the evidence, what we're going to do with the proof, what we're going to do with all of this. We do have a choice. There are different ways that we can go. There are different ways that we can live. We can embrace the resurrection of Jesus, but I hear people do this sometimes by talking about, oh, my pet Mookie is with me still in spirit. Is he really? That person lives on, they're with us now, I can feel it. Do we know that? How does one know that apart from some evidence of someone who has died and been raised? Someone has the power to overcome death. Where does that come from? Jesus asked Peter, midway through Mark's gospel back in chapter 8, who do people say that I am? Well, you're Elijah or one of the prophets or maybe someone else. Who do you say I am? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. That same Peter later says to Jesus, question, where will you go? To whom will you go? Are you going to leave me now to Peter? And Peter replies, who else will we go to? Who else has words of eternal life? Who else has words that supersede these bodies and this time. Who else but the resurrected one, the one who would be resurrected? Who else? Who are you going to turn to? Muhammad? He's still in his grave. Moses? He's still buried. The Buddha? Buried. Joseph Smith? Buried. Rotting in a grave. To whom are you going to go for words of eternal life? I think that's the question before us today. I'm going to the one who conquered death. I'm going to the one who overcame death. 
I'm going to the one who really seems to have words of eternal life that go on, that supersede the grave, that have power to overcome not just the death of this body, which will die, but of anger and violence and hate and unforgiveness and bitterness. That power is available to all of us, and you can trust him. You can believe, and to believe is to trust in its truest form. To believe something, Dallas Willard says, is to live as if it is true. And it is into that life that the resurrection accounts call us. To live as if something is true that seemed like it never could have been true, but when lived into makes all of the difference in the world, and that invitation is available to all of us today and again, whether you've ever received that for the first time or not, that invitation is for us. To not just sing hallelujah, but to live hallelujah. To not just declare that Christ is risen, but to have that be the orienting and the central truth of your life. Easter is not about bunnies at its core, invented in the 1600s. And again, they don't lay eggs. But it is about an empty tomb. And all of the Christian faith and all of Christian history revolves around that point and that one alone. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. You rose up from the grave, God in Christ. You conquered death. In this we find great strength and truth and reality. And we ask that you would help, to help us to imprint this truth and this reality on our lives, inside and out, heart, mind, soul, and strength. The power that you exerted in raising Jesus from the dead. Unleash in our lives and in the world and in the church for your glory and for your purposes to bring about your kingdom. Set us free, liberate us from unfaith and hesitation and reluctance and fear. And set us free in and by the resurrection of Jesus to live with joy, to experience your abundance and to seek to bring you the King of kings, glory in every way. Bring this about, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.